3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is Thursday, the 9th of June. That's right. We're well into winter and it is halfway through the year and it is 7.01 in the morning. So good to be with you this morning. Right now, I'm the only one in the studio, but I'm going to be joined soon by Inez. So you will hear Inez's dulcet tones gracing your ears uh, very soon. But um, yeah, wonderful to be with you on this chilly morning. Uh, It is uh, definitely, definitely cold outside. Um, I'm definitely, you know what, I've totally changed my mind. Now that I have gloves, I'm glad that I have them, and I don't know what I was doing when I was writing to radio without them. So uh, for anybody who's been keeping score, I take it all back. I was wrong. I'm probably going to reverse my position on this the moment that it starts warming up again. Um Yeah, we've got a massive show on for you today, as usual. But speaking of bringing you massive shows, which we do every week, we endeavor to bring you the best possible coverage of current affairs that you're not going to hear in mainstream media. You probably know that this is 3CR's Radiothon month. So Radiothon, what's Radiothon? We're trying to raise $250,000 to keep communities strong by keeping our radio station going for another year. Now, the breakfast shows have our own little uh, crowd raiser that is a part of contributing to that broader 250k goal. And you can find that at givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. And you can donate there towards our little part of the goal uh, for the whole station. And don't forget to nominate Thursday Breakfast when you donate. If you do, we'll be able to give you a shout out on our Radiothon show next week. Um, Also, apologies to anybody who tuned in this week and thought it was our Radiothon show because I accidentally, sorry, uh, said that it was going to be our Radiothon show this week. It is actually next Thursday, so please make sure that you tune in then because it's going to be really fun. We're going to have some of the guests that we've had on um, a couple of times during the year, including Irene from Rahu, and uh, we're going to be playing back some of our favorite interviews. And yeah, we will be shouting out people that have donated to Thursday Breakfast um, as part of that broader donation. Now, if you uh, are not able to donate to the Give Now crowd raiser, you can also donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And you can donate over the phone as well. So uh, you can call 94198377. That's 94198377. And one of our lovely staff or volunteers will be able to guide you as to how to donate there. But you can also send through a check or money order made out to 3CR to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood, Vic 3. Um, And you can also just drop by and donate at the station. Um, If you don't have time to call, you can also text your pledge of support to 0488-809-855. That's 0488-809-855. And we'll send you back payment details. So, look... Really, if you can spare it um, and any donation over $2 is tax deductible, then please do. There's so many different ways you can donate, um, and we'd really, really appreciate it. So 
I'll just jump into what we've got on for today. So first up, we're going to uh, hear Marisa from the Doing Time show, who caught up with Narita Waite, who's the Yorta Yorta, uh, who's Yorta Yorta and the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, about a recent case challenging age pension discrimination for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which is headed for the full federal court later this year. So this interview highlights the need for fair and equal access to benefits for Aboriginal people who commonly don't reach pension age by virtue of lower life expectancy. And until this life expectancy gap is properly addressed, Aboriginal people must have the right to retire with dignity. So thanks to Marisa from Doing Time for letting us replay that. Afterwards, we're going to hear from Ronnie Kareni, who is a Canberra-based West Papuan activist, musician, and a youth worker. And Ronnie's joining us to provide a West Papuan analysis of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's meeting with Indonesian President Joko Widodo earlier this week and the impact of Australia-Indonesia relations on West Papuans. Ronnie is a visiting fellow for West Papua Project at the University of Wollongong and the Pacific Mission for the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, and also a broadcaster with the Voice of West Papua on 3CR 855 AM, which you can hear on Tuesdays from 6.30 to 7.30 PM. After that, we're going to be joined by Mary Mallett, who's the CEO of the Disability Advocacy Network Australia, or DANA, the national representative body for a network of advocacy organisations in Australia that aims to strengthen and support disability advocacy organisations. And Mary joins us today to speak about advocacy, how to build strong networks, and current projects going on at DANA. And finally, we're going to be joined by Dr. James Lesh, who's an urban historian and lecturer in cultural heritage and museum studies, who's going to speak with us today about heritage policy and climate change adaptation. Now, James's research explores the theory and practice of heritage conservation in the 20th and 21st centuries, and he's had appointments at the universities of Melbourne and Sydney and King's College London, and his latest book, Values in Cities, Urban Heritage in the 20th Century Australia, offers an overview of the Australian heritage movement. So a lot coming up for you today, and really looking forward to bringing that all to, to you, and um, thank you so much for tuning in as well. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian Government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Actually, on that, um, if you had listened to our uh, our show, I think not last week, but the week before, we did interview uh, a campaigner with Gecko about uh, about logging and uh, dangerous changes to forest protest laws. And uh, an open letter has recently been published by Gecko um, about these forest protest laws that have been put forward by the Andrews government. And it's been sent by legal organizations, forest and climate groups, to the Victorian government requesting that they withdraw their bill. So um, if you head to gecko.org.au, you can find that letter. 
you can also find out more information and they've got it posted on their Facebook page as well. If you live in Victoria, you can get your union or workplace to add your name to the letter and email them at gecko at gecko.org.au to tell them. So, yeah, absolutely encourage people that are affiliated with any of these kinds of organizations to get in touch Um you know, see if your workplace is interested in signing on because this might set a really dangerous precedent for forest protests. Now, we'll jump into the headlines for this, the 9th of June. A Tiwi Island's First Nations clan is taking energy giant Santos to federal court in a groundbreaking case, fighting to stop a multi-billion dollar gas development in the Timor Sea. Senior lawman Dennis Tipakalipa says the project presents a fundamental threat to their food sources, culture, and way of life, and that lack of consultation with the Manupi clan makes the federal government approval for the project void. The case represents the first time a First Nations person is challenging an offshore project over lack of consultation, and lawyers for the case say it will set a precedent for what counts as adequate consultation with First Nations people in relation to offshore gas developments in the future. In other news, the Tasmanian government has announced plans to raise the minimum age of detention from 10 to 14 as part of an overhaul of the state's youth justice system. Legislation will need to pass through Parliament with changes anticipated to occur near the end of 2024. The changes stop short of raising the age of criminal responsibility, meaning police can still arrest, search and hold young people aged 10 and over for the purposes of investigating crime. Advocates welcomed the commitment, but said the age of criminal responsibility should also be raised to 14. Also in the headlines, a dual national whose citizenship was cancelled by the Australian government has won a landmark high court case. The ruling means that citizenship cannot be taken away on the basis of suspected terrorist activity overseas. The case concerned Turkish-Australian man Delil Alexander, who was accused and sentenced in Syria for being affiliated with terrorist groups and was subjected to torture prior to his sentence. Mr. Alexander was pardoned last year, but the Australian government then cancelled his citizenship despite advice from ASIO that did not recommend cancellation. Following the ruling, Mr. Alexander's Australian citizenship will be reinstated and future citizenship cancellations with these conditions will be considered unconstitutional. And finally, Queensland has become the latest state to provide free pads and tampons in public schools, a move that has been hailed as progress in the battle against period poverty and stigma, and one that has again shed light on the need for better access to information and support for people who menstruate. Research on period poverty in Australia released last year by Share the Dignity found that one in five people who menstruate improvise period products by using items including toilet paper and socks due to the cost of pads or tampons. Research also shows that not having access to education about menstrual health, appropriate facilities, and period products can be a barrier to education and have generational impact, particularly for students who have unstable accommodation or are fleeing family or domestic violence. Now, I will note on that some advocates have criticized uh, the move as not going far enough, considering that... um, considering that state schools uh, are able to, uh, sorry, state schools will be afforded these these products, uh, but there will be a lot of people that are left out, including uh, folks who are incarcerated and homeless folks. You know, these, uh, these vital sanitary products will not be provided to some of the people that need it the most. So while this is an important step in the right direction, we really need to make sure that everybody who needs to access these products is able to access them, um, you know, without being slapped with a period tax. 
Um, so that's the headlines that we have for today, Thursday, the 9th of June. I also wanted to remind people about Rise Refugees fundraiser to run an ex led farm. So let me just pull up those details. Um, so Rise is a is an organization that's entirely governed and led by ex-detainees, and they do campaigns, advocacy, casework, support services, and they have a food bank, drop-in center, and um, arts projects, and more. Uh, and they are starting, uh, they've started a fund to uh, establish an ex-detainee run and managed farm, a community farm which will operate on the principles of sustainability, self-determination, autonomy, well-being, and self-care. And you can find that by going to givenow.com.au forward slash x detainees farm and uh, you can donate there so any donation above two dollars i believe is tax deductible please do ahead to give now um, and help rise establish an ex-detainees farm uh, for self-determination and sustainability for ex-detainees you're listening to thursday morning breakfast on 3cr 855 a.m Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep communities strong. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to hear an interview from the Do and Time show on 3CR where Marisa caught up with Narita Waite, who's a Yorta Yorta woman and the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, about a recent case which challenged age pension discrimination for the for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which is headed for full federal court later this year. So let's listen to that interview. And you're back with the Do and Time show. And we're going to be interviewing Narita from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Narita Waite, proud Yorta Yorta woman, about how the federal court has ordered that a case against the federal government seeking fair and equal access to the age pension for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will be heard by the full court of the general court later this year to determine important questions of law. And we did interview about this quite some time ago now. It's taken so long for it to come back, hasn't it? And Uncle Dennis has been instrumental in helping with with all this. He's the one that's actually taking the government to court. Hello, Narita. Welcome. Thank you. You would have seen that the federal court case against the federal government seeking fair and equal access to the age pension for Aboriginal and Islander people will return. Um, yes. Returned for interim hearing, um, and uh, exciting news um, has obviously proceeded um, to the full bench of the federal court. Um, it's still, though, important to note that the new Albanese government can still take the initiative to address age pension inequality out of court by making very simple changes to the eligibility age for Aboriginal for other people. Um, and I'm sure um, you know everybody who's listening to this is aware of the age gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. When we're looking at how long our people live for, I mean, my mum died at 53, my uncle um, not long after, uh, way before he could 
reach pension age and it is discriminatory that our people can't access the age pension by virtue of their life expectancy. Absolutely, Nerija, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that because there really is quite a lot of misunderstanding and even racism in regards to this topic, isn't there, where I've often heard even individuals say, oh, but, you know, why Aboriginal people, why should they have to get the pension and other benefits? They don't understand. No, I mean, the Aboriginal Islander men have an average life expectancy of 8.6 years lower than our Indigenous men, and Aboriginal Islander women's lives are on average 7.8 years shorter than non-Aboriginal women. So certainly um, the evidence and the statistics back us up um, that we should have access to the pension earlier so that we can actually access it before we die. Uh, that's why thou, a lot of human rights law centre, is assisting Uncle Dennis to bring this case um, before the courts because it's incredibly important to our people to have equal access to the opportunities and the, and, uh, the benefits that that is provided by federal or state and territory governments. Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, I think there was a court case recently that, um, and it was, but it was very short, wasn't it? It was adjourned. Correct. Um, wow. But I mean, you know, Uncle Dennis has been working on this for years, um, and, and we've been happy to work alongside him for those years um, in order to get this up because. At the end of the day, each and every day in every community, um, we see the government fail to provide support services, need to close that life expectancy gap, whether it be health, whether it be education, whether it be justice, or whether it be all of the domains. Um, each and every day, we find it harder to access the services we need. However, when you look at the overrepresentation of our people with justice system, um, it is very hard for them to access services whilst in prison. And in fact, um, in Victoria, they have poor equivalency of healthcare, uh, which, as we're seeing in the case of Rodney Nelson, can lead ultimately to their death. So it's incredibly important that where we can, um, we fight the system to be fair and equal for us to have substantive access um, to those benefits that the system affords everybody else. Absolutely. You know, there's transgenerational trauma. There are so many different things. And I'm wondering if you could, if you would feel comfortable um, saying to us, telling listeners, why do Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people die earlier? Mm. I mean, certainly that's something um, that a health professional is more qualified to speak on. Uh, but, I mean... Uh, Obviously, working in the field, I do. Um, I have exposure to these issues. And a lot of it is is the history of colonialism. I mean, it, we're not that far from the colonial project. It's only been 200 years. And in those 200 years, our communities and our people have suffered innumerable wrongs, which has affected uh, their health, um, their education and their socioeconomic levels. And all of those things matter when it comes to life expectancy. If you have um, safe and affordable housing, if you have employment and a steady income, if you have a high level of education, you are likely to live longer. It's just the fact. It's very true what you're saying, Narita. Look, I, I won't ask you this, this next question today because I think that's a, this is a question for another show. 
but at some stage I really am wanting to interview someone about treaty and the statement of the heart because in some ways this is relevant, but we won't go into that today because we're really talking about, you know, what's happening with the court case. But it's 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 really appalling, honestly. It, it is. And, you know, the Productivity Commission last year confirmed that the target of equal life expectancy is actually not on track to be met by 2031, that the gap in life expectancy can only be closed if the federal government honours its commitments under the National Agreement of Closing the Gap to partner with Aboriginal and Islander people, which is yet to be seen. Um, and this case aims to support that vital work by holding them accountable um, for those commitments and encouraging them to support our people to implement self-determined solutions to close the gap. Uh, all we're asking here is that our people have equal rights to retiring dignity. And lowering uh, the pension age finally does that, but it also helps improve economic participation, financial security, and the well-being of our people who can no longer work. That's all we're asking. Exactly. And, and 50 is a very young age. It is. It is. I mean, you know, um, it's, uh, it's a sad tale in our family um, that many of us die quite early. I mean, my grandmother at 26, my mum at 53, um, and my uncle shortly after he's 60. So it, it is something that we struggle with every day. Um, this is not something that's anomaly in our community. It is the norm. Um, and in two, until we can actually close um, that gap in life expectancy, we should lower the pension age so that our people can retire in dignity. I mean, they've worked just as hard as any other Australian, but because of a history of colonialism, a history of barriers in economics and education, they just don't have um, the same ability to live longer and enjoy the age pension. And yet this, is, this has been happening for years and years and the, the successive governments have done nothing so far. Years and years and years. Um, I, I'm sure um, anybody who's listening can recall people in their own family who've died well before the pension age, whether it be their mum, um, their sister, their uncle, um, their great aunt or grandparents. Um, they've all got this story to tell. Absolutely. Marisha, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It was really lovely to have you. And I'm wondering, finally, with the the, the court, that a date hasn't yet been set, has it? No, not yet. Um, I'm sure everybody understands with the COVID-19 um, pandemic, court suffered um, considerable setback, which is why it's taken this long to get this stage. So um, waiting for a date uh, might just take a little bit longer. Thanks so much. And I wanted to actually thank... Um, Pat from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service for organising this interview. Thanks a lot, Narita. Not a problem. Hopefully we can talk more about treaty or statement of the heart and maybe then open all the justice system in future. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't want to ask you any questions about that today because I thought you'd want to be more prepared. Yes. No, let's <laughs> come in with a prayer. <laughs> um, and, yeah, really it's the heart of it, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely, and we'll do that very soon, Narita. Not a problem. Have a lovely afternoon. Goodbye. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye.
Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.24 in the morning, and you just heard Marisa from the Doing Time show who caught up with Narita Waite, who's Yorta Yorta woman and CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, about a recent case challenging age pension discrimination for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which is headed for full federal court later this year. Now, this interview highlighted the need for fair and equal access to benefits for Aboriginal people who commonly do not reach pension age by virtue of lower life expectancy. And until this life expectancy gap is properly addressed, Aboriginal people must have the right to retire with dignity. Now, you can find out more about the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services work at www.vals.org.au. And you can catch the Do and Time show with Marisa and Peter on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. on 3CR 855. And now we might go into a track. This is Better Things by Kian. Love my 
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard Better Things, an absolute classic by Kian. And now we're going to go to an interview with Ronnie Karani, who's a Canberra-based West Papuan activist, musician, and youth worker who's joining us today to provide a West Papuan analysis of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's meeting with Indonesian President Joko Widodo earlier this week and the impact of Australia-Indonesia relations on West Papuans. Ronnie, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you, Priya, for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, always feels like a little bit of insider trading when a 3CR person interviews another 3CR person, but we're so glad to have you on. Um, so to start off with, um, yeah, Anthony Albanese visited Jakarta earlier this week to meet with Joko Widodo, accompanied by senior ministers and some key industry figures. And I understand that with the change in Australia's federal government, there was a little bit of cautious hope that the new government might be a bit more open to the concerns of West Papuans. So what were some of the outcomes that West Papuans were um, asking for and looking for out of these meetings, uh, for example, with relation to the United Nations scrutiny? And have they been delivered? Well, certainly there's cautious hope for the Pacific with the change in Australia's government, but the outcome is far from West Papuan's hope. And with relation to the UN visit to the region, um, it's not been fulfilled or been delivered up to date. Um, we know that the, the Australian government continues rhetorically uh, Rhetorically, sorry, I'm hosting notion of Indonesia's territorial integrity when it comes to West Papua. And this is pretty much the baseline of uh, the, any bilateral or multilateral engagement. Um, but nonetheless, Australia is a member of the Pacific Island Forum, and the Pacific leaders have strongly called on the visit of the UN Human Rights Commissioner um, to the region. And so what is worrying is that the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, um, which Antonio Albanese remarks and the joint communique, is something that will be regarded, uh, like, yeah, will be regarded with, the, with some wariness by many in the Pacific, and mostly from the Pacific, uh, West Papuan leaders, um, whether Prime Minister Antonio 
has progressed the visit of the UN Human Rights Commissioner to West Papua, as requested of them by the West Papuan, as well as the Pacific Island leaders. Mm, yeah, and this, you know, this request has been quite long-standing as well. And so, yeah, there was that hope that um, that finally, potentially, with a change in government, there would be the opportunity for some pressure on the Indonesian government to have. United Nations scrutiny in the region, which has been prevented until now and still, you know, continues to be an issue. Um, I also wanted to turn to some of the industry leaders that were included in these uh, in this in this visit, and that included senior executives from Fortescue, Blue, Sto- Blue Scope Steel, Sun Cable, Telstra, Thales Australia, and West Farmers. And now, our listeners. Uh, ears might be pricking up there. A couple of those names stand out as being major players in both the extractive industries and the weapons manufacturing industries. So with Fortescue, even though it signaled some commitment to renewables through its future industries initiative, and Thales, which supplies arms and vehicles to the Indonesian military that are used in the brutal repression of West Papuans. So what are some of your thoughts on these companies being included in talks during Albanese's first official visit to Indonesia as prime minister? Yeah, it's it's very interesting to hear those big um, extractive um, industries and companies' names um, as part of the delegates. And at the end of the day, the bilateral trade, economic and investment between both Indonesia and Australia, with companies being included in talks during Albanese's first official visit to Indonesia, must not come at the expense of the indigenous people's land and rights. And this is something one to familiar, but uh, as we can, you know, we just had um, the earlier um, um, prerequisite uh, conversation there um, around um, locals, communities um, fighting and trying to protect their lands. And part of this, particularly with the the case of the um, Fortesk Future Industry, um, in September 2020, uh, they entered into an agreement uh, with the Indonesian government, and this agreement gives first priority to the Fortesk feature industry to conduct development studies in the feasibility of projects um, utilizing Indonesia's hydropower and geothermal resources to support green industrial operations, and which principally for exports to global markets. And so since then, uh, Fortesk have shown interest to follow up on an investment plan for hydropower plant project in West Papua, um, a, a region uh, called Mambramuraya. And this is where uh, there's a big river, and so there's a plan for a, a mega dam um, project that will go into this. And And this is also part of the special autonomy deal that, Indonesian government swiftly passed through the parliament to expand the so-called new autonomous regions. So um, what they, I have to also mention, um, in 2020, around the same time, Indonesia passed this um, omnibus law. And this bill uh, pretty much um, looks at the um, giving more access to investment, um, as well as um, foreign donors to come in and do exactly what Fortesk is carrying out. And so in the case of West Papua, this, even with the special autonomy, um, it's more about opening 
investment to outside world and companies and big extractive industries to come in and it marginalized or silenced the voice of the labor workers, the farm workers, the indigenous peoples, workers' rights. It minimizes that but fast track um, investment into coming in. And so this is one of the, the concerns as well um, with regards to some of these um, extractive um, companies or industries coming in. And also Tales or Tales, um, which prayer, prayer you outlined earlier, mm-hmm. it supplies um, arms and vehicles to the Indonesian military that are used in the brutal repression of um, West Papuans. Um, Tales sells weaponized vehicles to Indonesia's special forces, Kopassus. And their big ticket export item is the Bushmaster weaponized vehicle, including guns and ordnance. Um, it's it's, um, uh, its munitions, weapons, and equipment are being used pretty much against Papuans or across the, uh, the, the archipelago where there are resistance towards central government um, plans and um, projects. But West Papua is uh, one of the classic cases. And here is, it's kind of like really the question of, um, on, you know, the, during the election speech and all this, we hear about um, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese's um, message about the commitment to the Uluru Statement. And one minute, um, he is out there partying to a genocidal frontier war. Yeah, I mean, I think what you've outlined there also really clearly brings together some of these threads about, you know, Australia's complicity uh, in the in the sort of like arms uh, arms dealership and arms trading in the region that's used in the repression of West Papuans, when at the same time there are these companies like Fortescue through their futures initiative coming in and, um, you know, uh, being, you know, ha- having their uh, interests in the region facilitated by the Indonesian government at the expense of West Papuans, of indigenous peoples that are in the region. And, you know, for people that are familiar with these big sort of hydroelectric projects, that does involve a massive amount of displacement of communities um, and um you know, a, a massive amount of effectively terraforming of the area, which is something that is kind of being sidelined in the discussion at the expense of thinking about, oh, this is, you know, a big like green energy initiative. But, you know, at who's, at, you know, who, who is who is bearing the cost of this? And, uh, I, you know, I appreciate you bringing back that um all of those uh, legislative instruments that have been put forward by the Indonesian government that sort of allow increased encroachment in the area, but also facilitate bringing international players into the region, which has obviously been going on for a long time with the extractive industries. But now even with the transition to green energy, it's still sort of about this appropriation of West Papuan's land um, and yet yeah, repression of West Papuan people. Uh, so I was also wondering if I could get your perspective on the way that mainstream media reporting has been covering Australia-Indonesia relations, uh, because both this visit and Indonesia's role at the helm of this year's G20 summit is definitely garnering the country some positive publicity as a leader, leader in the region. And this appears to be outshining some of those issues that we've talked about, including uh, the violent responses to ongoing protests in West Papua over the breaking up of the provinces. Oh yeah, well, in terms of the the role of mainstream media covering in the lead up of um, all like with what just happened a few days ago, there was no mention of 
uh, concerns to human rights or humanitarian crisis that is happening um, in West Papua. We know in terms of both uh, governments trying to make it, you know, lovey-dovey in front of the media. But it's appalling as well, and it's an inexcusable for a journalist not to bring such critical issues, which days ago we see Foreign Minister Penny Wong went to the region in, with this Australia's concern on security and keep mentioning about Pacific family. So when speaking about Pacific family, Australia should not be ignore or forgot that culturally, ethnically, the people of West Papua are part of the Pacific family. And this is one thing that has been missing through those narratives of conversations we see and coming out in the media. And in the Pacific, as well as lead up to the G20, there has been already numerous calls on the G20 leaders or countries, as well as for Indonesia, that they make sure or ensure that a visit by the UN Human Rights Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, is allowed to take place before G20 Indonesia. So a report on her findings can be prepared for those those attending. Mm. And um, this was in April that a statement released by the Pacific Elders Voice, which they said no G20 leader should attend without a clear understanding of the human rights situation in West Papua. So this is also a challenge for the mainstream uh, uh media as well as journalists uh, who are doing uh, the corresp- uh, foreign correspondence um, in Indonesia are covering at large the, uh, what's happening in Indonesia. To really look into the broader issue in Indonesia, there are refugee case, um, thousands of refugees on that island that both leaders met in Bogor, mm-hmm. um, which did not have a mention on this. Um, there is also with the West Papua and environmental Cases. Climate change was mentioned with the MOU um, for commitment into that, and Australia will put more um, in investment and support into that, and as well as the G20. But this should not come with the silence on human rights, environmental um, impacts, and issues, which we covered just then. Um, that you know, it looks nice on paper, green um, you know initiatives from big extractive industries. But what they're actually doing is nowhere near that. Yeah, absolutely. And it also really speaks to the, um, I guess, like this broader sidelining of specifically Melanesian voices in um, in a lot of reporting uh, about the region. But also we've seen recently in terms of conversations about the Solomon Islands and deals with China. Um, there's been, you know, like... In, in, in the Pacific, um, you know, in terms of talking about the Pacific family, there is, you know, this lack of attention to a lot of, like, our closest Melanesian neighbours who are, you know, facing, you know, severe repression, uh, but also the effects of climate change, but also Australia is, uh, is complicit in a lot of a lot of these issues that we um, are not getting enough public scrutiny on through the mainstream media. So thank you, Ronnie, for, for telling us about that. Now, is there anything you wanted to draw listeners' attention to before we wrap up? And where can people follow your work? Oh, thank you. Well, firstly, thank you for this amazing um, Thursday breakfast shows and many other shows that continues to really give that opportunity for uh, West Papua, many issues that would not even get uh, airtime um, in, in mainstream media. So really appreciate the work you guys are doing and 
Tricia as a whole at the community radio that continues to support the voice of the um, voiceless. And um, the work that I do, I continue to do is through the um, United Liberation Movement for West Papua. There is a, a website, um, ULMWP. Con- uh, people can check more information of Benny Wenda under his the leadership leaders that we kind of work under the unified front through the ULMWP. There's free West Papua campaign, even the Voice of West Papua program at Tricia um, for updates and information on developing stories on the ground. But also, yeah, Priya, yourself, um, amazing. You, you, you're active on social media as well and on Twitter, so it's good to follow the Thursday Breakfast Show and yourself as well. Um, your hashtag and my hashtag, um, Ronnie Karenia, on Twitter, just for updates on what's happening in West Papua. But thank you for the opportunity to share some of the, yeah, um, insights and the voice of West Papua people. Thank you so much, Ronnie. And I, you know, I learned so much from you and I really appreciate you, you know, speaking with us about this, speaking me, about, speaking with me about this privately and like wording me up on what's happening. Um, so grateful for all of the work you do and thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right. And that was Ronnie Kearney, Canberra-based West Papuan activist, musician, and youth worker, who joined us to provide a West Papuan analysis of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's meeting with Indonesian President Joko Widodo earlier this week and the impact of Australia-Indonesia relations on West Papuans. Ronnie is a visiting fellow for the West Papua Project at the University of Wollongong and the Pacific Mission for the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, which we'll have a link to in our show notes. And you can also listen to Ronnie on The Voice of West Papua on 3CR, that is 855 AM, what you're listening to right now, Tuesdays from 6.30 to 7.30 PM. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Stick Together. All about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. 
And now we are joined by Mary Millett, who is the CEO of Disability Advocacy Network Australia, or DANA, the national representative body for a network of advocacy organisations in Australia, and it aims to strengthen and support disability advocacy organisations. And they join us today to speak about advocacy and how to build strong networks and current projects. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Mary. Thanks, Inez. No problem. Uh, would you mind starting us off with telling us a little bit about DANA and the work that you do there? Yes. So DANA uh, was set up by the Disability Advocacy Organisations about 15 years ago so that the organisations could have a national voice. They're, they're based in every state and territory, but the organisations are all separate autonomous organisations. They're funded to provide independent disability advocacy either by the Commonwealth or the state or territory government. Uh, and But they, they thought it was important to have this national network so that they could come together on, on important national issues in particular. So that's where DANA evolved from, and that's still how we operate. We've members, member organisations in every state and territory. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I feel like being able to support <laughs> lots of organisations um, and make and be a solid part of that is a really important role to have. I think, uh, maybe also personally for me, I think for a while I also thought that, um, you know, policy and advocacy was like protesting and signing petitions and obviously it is so much more and a lot of policy and advocacy work is often really demanding and relationship-focused and time-sensitive. Uh, would you mind maybe speaking about what advocacy actually looks like day-to-day? Mm, yes, yes, that's it. So uh, there's, there's a difference between some of the different kinds of advocacy, but the most advocacy that's done is done, it's kind of on-the-ground, face-to-face advocacy. It's, it's an advocate working with and for a person with disability, in this case, in disability advocacy, uh, and helping them to get a, a, an issue resolved that they need help with. Now, the, they're often quite serious issues, sometimes the point at which they come to look for an advocate, it's that crisis. Uh, and they can be about all kinds of things that are happening in somebody's life. So it could be to, a lot of the issues are to do with the, the big systems. So something to do with the NDIS or Centrelink, or the state housing department, or uh, just a system problem, because the the big complex systems that people need uh, to survive, um, they're very difficult to navigate. Um, And and some people with disability in particular find them difficult to navigate. So that's that's one role that advocates play, is, is helping people understand uh, what the system is telling them and why. And, and often it's about somebody being rejected for the disability support pension or right. uh, their NDIS, the NDIS has decided they're not eligible to, to participate, um, for example. But, but there are also other um, problems people might be having that are uh, to do with um, just... Sometimes interpersonal stuff, but uh, it, it's it's really it's every every point at which somebody needs a person in their corner to give them to give them a hand uh, when they can't manage to do something by themselves. That's really what an advocate is for, and the, and the advocate's job is not it's not to take over and do do resolve the thing by the you know for 
for the person completely by themselves. The advocate's role is to support the person to be involved, to have their voice heard, because people, individuals are often ignored, especially by big systems, uh, and systems make, uh, and people who work for the big systems tend to make assumptions about people, about their competence and capacity. And the advocate, so the advocate's role is to be in, be in that person's corner, be on their side, completely partisan towards that person, uh, and help them get something fixed. Uh, and the advocate will use a whole lot of mechanisms and ways of doing that. Uh, sometimes it's, it's shortcuts because the advocate knows, uh, you know, over, after working on issues for a long time, they, they understand the legislation, they understand the rules, they understand how things work, and they use that knowledge to help somebody cut through uh, to the person who can help them uh, or, or to defend themselves, really, against... Uh, the rules that are that are often applied in, incorrectly. Yep. I think also you touched on a really important point there that uh, it is about supported decision-making, and I feel like a lot of uh, disability work is also about interdependence as well as um, autonomy. However, could you maybe touch on what supported decision-making actually looks like? Um, because sometimes the goal isn't always to ensure somebody is 100% um, independent when sometimes that's not possible and just making sure that they are supported in a way that they can make their own decisions um, but, yeah, in a way that they feel educated. Would you mind touching a little bit about the complexity of that? Yes, yes. Supported decision-making is part of the practice of advocacy. So it's it's talked about now to some extent as a separate process or a separate, you know, separated off really and talked about as a, a thing, an entity in its own right. Um, but it's always been part of the the, uh, the kit of an advocate. It's it's part of how advocates work. And I, I think I mentioned that they don't just dive in and make the decision for the person. The, 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 the point is that the person, what, what the individual wants and uh, what their goal is, what they want to achieve, what what they want to get resolved, that's exactly what the advocate is helping them work towards. And and for the person to be as fully involved in the in the decisions that, that come up as part of that process. Supported decision making of course isn't just done by professional paid advocates. It's done by Parents and family members and siblings, you know, of, of people with disability, they start that process and, and you know, when, when a, a child with a disability is, you know, at a very early age is learning about making decisions. So, so it doesn't, it doesn't come from nowhere, if you know what I mean. It's, yeah, done, it's done by other people, friends, allies, other people as well. You know, for, for all of us, you mentioned interdependence there, you very few of us live entirely in an isolated sort of bubble. We, we, that it's usual that, that when anybody has a major decision that, to make, most people do, they talk about it with, with their close friends, with their, with people that they trust, people who's, um, who, where they value somebody's judgment on something and they might, they might talk to different people in their lives about different types of decisions that they want to make. So that's usual. That's that's the, that's exactly what everybody else does. And there are sometimes some people with disability 
don't have other people in their lives who who they trust and who they know well and who will support them through making decisions. So it's, it is a role that an advocate plays. Uh, every time they're working with someone on an advocacy issue, they, they support them to make the, the, the decisions. And the other, the other particular point about that is, of course, not everybody makes, none of us, we don't always make the right decision the first time. So part of supported decision-making is actually accepting and respecting that anybody has the right to make the wrong decision if, if, if that's what they want to do at that time. You know, that there's, there's lots of things that, uh, that, that we all do that we know we, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't have that second piece of cake with our coffee. Maybe we shouldn't have the, the tenth cigarette. Oh, they, these are minor everyday decisions, but we have the right to make them, even if other people don't uh, appreciate or, or think we're not doing the right thing. Well, that, exactly that same. And that same issue applies to people with disability making the decisions. They don't have to make, and they shouldn't be expected to make, the perfect decision every single time. And, and so the advocate's role is actually to make sure that what the person thinks and wants and decides is respected. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, being able to strengthen your relationship and allowing, I think the most important thing that you touched on there is that there is no need to be perfect and we have to accept that people are allowed to make their mistakes just as much as anybody else. And I know that sometimes people who are historically excluded have a expectation that they have to be perfect in order to feel uh, respected or yeah. that and it, I feel like that's completely unfair because we don't make that same expectation on able-bodied people yeah. um, and I think also interestingly about advocacy is that you especially Dana fulfills its purpose by you know information sharing between disability advocacy organizations uh, but I'm also interested to know do you find that when you're communicating or managing government relations how do you adapt your communication style to you know achieve disability rights particularly during COVID? Uh, government relations and dealing with government departments is different from it, it's a particular type of advocacy uh, it, so over time you build organizations like ours uh, you have to earn the trust of of a people in the government department or or politicians the same as you have to earn trust in any it's a different kind of relationship but it is a, it is a relationship and so what happens over time when an organization shows up and provides the, the right information and and provides useful you know useful Intel, useful information about what's happening on the ground and feeds that appropriately into the right processes, um, either verbally at meetings or through submissions, um, and, and uh, so that you're seen, if the organisation is then seen as a, as a useful part of assisting government policy to be developed, then, then you get more of an opportunity to be in the room, to, to be part of discussions, to be sometimes part of early thinking about how a government policy might be shaped. So that's, it, it's, an, it's, a, it's a privileged opportunity and organisations like ours don't take that lightly um, and, and we have to manage that process by uh, respecting the relationships with the people, the advocates on the ground that are doing the work, uh, asking them 
about to uh, often enough about what's happening on the ground so that we we hold the right information and then using and sharing that information wisely into various government processes uh, so that it benefits that's the whole point of all of that work is so that it benefits the people with disability who need the advocacy yeah I definitely feel like it is a delicate uh, balance to walk and understanding that you do have to get things done but you also need to stay true to disability rights and make sure that Absolutely. it's always front of mind yeah. Um, but yeah we do live in a society <laughs> uh, which sometimes can be a little bit difficult but um, I think lastly I just want to touch on one of your current projects which is the intake project um, and it looks at how intake and prioritization processes are being used in disability advocacy organizations as well as how wait lists and demand are managed and I think you're also looking at uh, different systems and tools in different sectors like family violence community legal and housing uh, could you talk a little bit about what these wait lists um, are having an impact on people, particularly with people with intersecting identities with disabilities such as race and gender and sexuality? Thanks, Inez. Uh, the intent subject really came about uh, because, you, you know, people might have seen for the last number of years uh, there, there's been a whole lot of um, media around, particularly around NDIS issues and NDIS appeals, uh, where people are appealing their plans for the AAT. Uh, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, uh, that it's difficult for people to get an advocate. And that's because most of the organisations are at capacity nearly all the time. So the funding for advocacy uh, has stayed much the same for many years, but the demand and the need for advocacy has grown significantly. So that you, you mentioned prioritisation. What that means is uh, the advocacy organisations have to uh, confront every day, really, the fact that there are more people coming then they can help. And so they have to make uh, decisions about who whose issue is either has a, a time and uh, need to be helped instantly because, you know, they have a court hearing or the child's going to be removed by child protection or something, something there's a critical time issue. And for other people, well, maybe they can wait, their issue can wait for a week or two or a little bit longer. So then the advocates have to make decisions about putting people on wait lists. And you, the, the thing they always try and do first is refer them to another organisation that would be able to help them immediately. But when the whole sector is at capacity, that's difficult. So that means that, that it, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, by the time someone makes the decision to contact an advocacy organisation, they may have waited a while before they do that, and then really they want that help and then they need it right now. So to be told that we can't help you now and you'll have to go on a wait list, is difficult for people when they're already stressed. Uh, so then the advocacy organisations try and manage the wait lists by staying in touch with people, giving them some help over the phone, sending them information, doing as much as they can over the phone and uh, by talking people through what they can do themselves to get started on the issue before they, you know, it might be two or three weeks or occasionally longer before they can then finally get a proper meeting with an advocate and get a plan developed for how they're going to work on, the, on their issue. Um, it's not, it's a situation the whole sector is, finds difficult and uncomfortable. Uh, and it, it, this, was, this project was funded by the Department of Social Services, who funds DANA, and because they, they want to try and help the sector work out, are there efficiencies <laughs> that you can make 
and the, the all the advocacy organisations were very um, generous with their time in coming together to discuss these issues. They're, they're keen to work out what, what else can they do? How can they how can they be more efficient? How can they be more organised? Uh, there is a limit, of course, and that's, that's probably what we've developed. And we, we have um, we have developed uh, a draft. Um, a, a toolkit that, that, that organisations can use and we're getting feedback on it at the moment and we are, like as you mentioned, we're talking to some other sectors to see, you know, have they got magic tips that they've got about what they've developed um, but I think really what it comes down to is no matter how good your system is, no matter how good your database, no matter how efficient and effective you are, the, the important thing is that really as quickly as possible you want to get the person who needs help in direct contact with the advocate who's going to work with them so that they can, you know, help sort out the, uh, the issue. And that's what we're still... It, it means that as well as doing this work on on the impact um, the whole project and processes, of course, at the same time we are uh, working on how to encourage uh, mm. governments at all levels to uh, support the funding of increased funding for disability advocates. And I'll just mention your, your last point in your question about the intersectional issues. Um, so it's, it's, it's a common thing, isn't it, that, that people who have, people who are in, a in some kind of disadvantaged circumstance, it's, it's quite common that they have more than one reason why they are disadvantaged or struggling. And often they have layers of, you know, that term intersectionality is used commonly now, but it's, it's sort of got to do with layers of discrimination that people experience. So people with disability are often discriminated against in all kinds of ways. And then the same applies for people who are LGBTQIA+, or um, uh, non-binary yeah. or, you know, any, any, any sort of, um, it, it, it's, it's just a sad reflection of, of human nature or society or something. That yeah, absolutely. Any, any aspect where people, other people can pick somebody out as being different often means they have this layer of, of discrimination. And then to have multiple layers, of course, makes people's lives much more difficult. Yeah, and, absolutely. So yeah. Yeah, well, I know you've touched on a lot of what really fantastic points here today, Mary, and I just want to thank you again for your time. Um, and we'll put um, all the links to Dana in our show notes as well. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, bringing light to what advocacy is all about. Thanks, Inez. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was Mary Mallett, the CEO of Disability Advocacy Network Australia, or DANA, the national representative body for a network of advocacy organizers organizations in Australia aiming to strengthen and support disability advocacy. And... Um, Look, uh, it's not going to hurt to plug it again. It is Radiothon time at 3CR. That's right, June Radiothon month. And you uh, can donate to the Thursday Breakfast Show in particular by heading to givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. 
um, and nominate Thursday Breakfast, and we'll shout you out next week on our Radiothon show. Basically, we are trying to chip in, do our little bit, to keep community strong by raising $250,000 to keep the station going for another year. Uh, the vast majority of shows on 3CR are volunteer-run. Uh, we do this because we love what we do. We love being able to be a part of the 3CR community um, and to bring you issues we're passionate about, whether it be around climate justice, social justice issues, um, you know, all kinds of things that 3CR covers. We've got an amazing suite of community language programs. There's the gardening show. There's Talk Back with Attitude, which uh, I'm always here to see the start of, and I know that there are a lot of staunch supporters of that. Um, please, please donate if you can. You can also head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate, and there are a bunch of different options. You can either do it over the phone, via SMS, and you'll be able to find all of that information there. For now, we're going to go to a track. This is a new one from Nairi. This is Fuchsia. How do I sense what's on the mind? Before they dip me down in holy water, bathe me in the light. They're going to crucify me for my Silhouette, the sun, the 
And you've just heard a song, Fuchsia by Nari, which is a new track. And now we'll hand it over to Priya. Look, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hello. Hey, guys. Um, Yabba dabba do. Yeah, I was just going to remind people again to head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate because we will shout you out if you do donate to Thursday Breakfast. And by uh, you can do that just by nominating Thursday Breakfast in your pledge. So go to givenow.org.au forward slash cr forward slash breakfast. Nominate Thursday Breakfast. Anything over $2 tax deductible. Any little amount helps, even if it's five bucks. You know, when you listen to us on the radio and you're like, wow, I wish I could buy those guys a coffee. Instead of doing that, donate the cost of a coffee to our Radiothon fundraiser, nominate Thursday Breakfast, and we'll play, uh, we'll read out your name next week and play a little, like, cash jingly thing, and um, everybody will know that you're a great supporter of community radio. Um, and now we're going to head to another CSA before we come back around for our final interview. <laughs> They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Brothers, sisters, we don't need 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to hear now from Dr. James Lesh, who's an urban historian and lecturer in cultural heritage and museum studies. And James is speaking with us today about heritage policy and climate change adaptation. Now, James's research explores the theory and practice of heritage conservation in the 20th and 21st centuries. So we really experience, uh, so we really appreciate his experience and uh, expertise here. James, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Priya. Yeah, um, earlier this week, The Age published an article about a homeowner in Canterbury being ordered by the city of Burundara to remove solar panels that he'd installed on his roof because they clashed with heritage restrictions. So I thought, could you start off by giving us your assessment of this incident and the decision that was ultimately handed down by VCAT ordering the homeowner to remove the solar panels as a way to enter this discussion? Yes, so it was, it was an interesting case and I think one that we've seen uh, happen across Melbourne and across Victoria over recent years and the last couple of decades as well. Uh, so to provide some context, what happened in this case was that there was a, a homeowner who, who uh, installed solar panels on his house in a, in a heritage area, in a local heritage area, um, which was put in place by the city of Bandura. Uh, sorry, Borindara, my apologies. And um, what has, has ultimately happened is that uh, there's been a case brought up against the homeowner about uh, the installation of those solar panels as being inconsistent with the uh, heritage of the neighbourhood. Um, and VCAT has, I suppose, sided against uh, the homeowner and ordered the panels to be removed. 
because it's been perceived to be inconsistent with heritage. What I, what I think is quite remarkable about this incident is that, again, we're seeing a particular interpretation or a particular understanding of heritage, which sees environmental sustainability measures put in place by homeowners or put in place as, by property owners as inconsistent with the conservation of the built environment um, and therefore requiring its removal. And this goes, I suppose, against uh, emerging principles within conservation theory, but it also goes against uh, the stated objectives even of Victorian heritage policy, um, which is finding increasingly that climate change adaptation and sustainability really need to be at the heart of heritage conversations and heritage decision-making. So it might be a little bit too far to call the decision bizarre, but it's one which has has precedent in, in very old-fashioned understandings of heritage and, and one that I think that, uh, that councils and, and planners uh, and the community more generally should be rallying against and, and preventing from occurring in the future. Yeah, thanks for thanks for laying the issue out there, because I also feel like this is, you know, heritage policy is is probably not front of mind for a lot of listeners who aren't, you know, specifically focused in that area. So they might not be familiar with some of the legislative architecture that's in place to protect heritage, heritage places at the state level. And I understand this consists of a combination of the Planning and Environment Act 1987 and the Heritage Act 2017. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong there, but can you tell us a bit about what the acts cover and how they sort of define and approach heritage significance and to what extent the public are equipped to participate in heritage measures? Yes, yeah, so that's right. Uh, th- th- we have what, what we understand, what we call local heritage and state heritage. And so, state heritage is a bit over, a little bit over two thousand places around Victoria, which are identified for their state importance or state significance. So, we're talking about quite remarkable sites and areas and objects, things like uh, the Parliament or Flinders Street Station or the State Library. Um, for example, just in the in the in the CBD alone, really, oh, really, really uh, exceptionally uh, fantastic sites. And then at the local level, councils are responsible under the Environment and Planning Act, as, as you said, for identifying places of, of significance for the local communities at a council level. Um, and while we might say on the on the one hand uh, that the state heritage is, is more important, the places are more significant when it comes to the, to the raw numbers. Um, more than 98% of individual properties that are protected by heritage actually occur by local councils. So just 2% of properties are protected by state heritage, 98% fall within the remit of councils. And we're talking here about something between 150 and 180,000 individual properties around Victoria that are protected by local council measures. And so this is really where the bulk of work needs to be done in terms of ensuring a consistency between heritage and sustainability. Now, what the legislation does, and, and it's a little bit dated right now, uh, particularly the Environment and Planning Act, um, it's in, in some ways been put in the too hard basket in terms of legislative reform. Uh, very recently, the Legislative Council uh, has, have, has actually initiated an inquiry from the backbenchers um, by Clifford Hayes and, uh, and Samantha Ratnam, uh, Ratnam being of the Greens, looking at, at these sorts of issues at both the local and state level and whether the Act is fit for purpose. Uh, and the reason they're doing this, this, this inquiry is because, particularly when it comes to heritage, heritage is, is conserving particular things, particular objects, but also particular values. And the values that heritage is conserving 
is predominantly what we might call very traditional heritage value. So what we might refer to as historic significance uh, and aesthetic significance. Um, when it comes to historic significance, we're really talking about places that uh, celebrate the nation or celebrate the city or celebrate the community. Now, what that means is that we are, uh, are not protecting or really engaging with with places as much that belong to marginalised and minority groups or to Indigenous communities as well. Um, and again, when it comes to aesthetic value, we're really concerned about really beautiful things, mostly from the 19th century, less things from where from the 20th century when really our, most of our built environment was created. So not only is there a problem with the way that we're conserving our traditional values, but also, and I think as your question said, uh, indicated as well, we've got a problem with how we're conserving what we might refer to as kind of emergent values, things like social values, community values, environmental values, um, sustainability values, uh, and sorts of kind of values and issues that we might say uh, is about the heritage of the future uh, rather than the heritage of the past. But our act is unable, our legislative environment is really unable to deal with those issues, uh, kind of any sort of substance Yeah, and as you mentioned, um, the the majority of those decisions about heritage and heritage management do fall at the local council um, at the local council level or local government level. And um, I was wondering, you know, thinking about some of the concerns that were outlined in that piece in the Age, what kinds of approaches have different local government areas in Victoria taken to deal with concerns that are at the intersection of heritage policy and climate change mitigation and adaptation? Because I'm wondering whether the city of Burundara uh, represents the exception or the rule. I think the unfortunate situation is that it really represents the rule. Uh, and uh, we haven't seen a, a huge amount of innovation occurring in, in terms of sustainability and heritage at the local level. Uh, and, and the reason that we, we haven't seen a huge amount of, uh, of innovation in, in terms specifically of, of values related to the environment is because the Environment and Planning Act doesn't enable that to happen. One area where there, there has been a strong attempt for innovation has been around questions of social and community value. So the city of Ballarat in particular is an exemplar here. And what the city of Ballarat did was working with that UNESCO uh, and and an approach called the Historic uh, Urban Landscape, HUL. They actually made a really strong attempt, the team there, to centralise community perspectives out in terms of new heritage protection. So they went around to the community and they said, what do you think is important? Why do you think it's important? Let's get artists involved, creators involved, local businesses involved, uh, homeowners involved, and let's create a, a sense of what the community wants to see conserved and the ways they want to, uh, the ways they want to be able to respond to heritage places, whether it's say installing solar panels on, on a house or or adapting a building for new uses. At the end of that process, which went for a number of years, the city of Ballarat was unable to institute a single new local heritage protection measure from that entire effort. Now, on the one hand, it, the, this historic urban landscape, the whole approach really gave the city of Ballarat the opportunity to, to initiate cultural change in how people thought about heritage, both the community and in council, uh, and really, really brought in a progressive uh, perspective on heritage. Um, it also is leading to a potential nomination to the World Heritage List of the Victorian Goldfields. So seeing heritage as uh, in central Victoria as an op- economic opportunity, a sustainability opportunity, a community opportunity. But but when it came down to, I suppose, the, ultimately the, uh, 
that there was no way that the, the city of Ballarat could actually institute heritage protections within the existing system. Mm. Yeah, and I think this this speaks to a need for you know sort of broader reform around uh, the legislation and, and policy that we have now around heritage. And I was thinking just to you know at, in view of wrapping up, um, it is pretty clear that there are a whole range of urgent climate mitigation and adaptation strategies that are required to you know prevent climate collapse. We've seen the IPCC reports, and um, we still have the opportunity and responsibility to take action. And I was wondering if you could speak to some of the best practice examples of heritage policy that you've seen either here or overseas that kind of set the standard for balancing considerations of heritage and climate change? That, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. And where the, where the cutting edge is in terms of thinking about heritage and sustainability is not thinking about these two, uh, these two areas as being opposed, but rather seeing them as, as, mutually, as mutually reinforceable. So if we understand heritage at the most fundamental level, it's everything that we have created and built and associated as a community with the environment, from time uh, from time uh, immemorial, uh, from in, in our ancient Indigenous history right through to the present day. Now, the more of what we have that we can keep, uh, adapt, and use in terms of materials uh, uh, and, and areas, uh, the, the, the better outcomes there are for our environment. Um, concepts like embodied energy, for example, mean that we can we can actually begin increasingly to measure the what the built environment holds in terms of uh, what it would, what, what the costs are to replace it versus what the cost, what the benefits are of keeping it, um, and, it, it, and it's kind of the, uh, the, the the line which is often thrown around is by Carlo Lafente is the greenest building is the one that's already built, and so the sense is what if we go if we kind of change the paradigm, and so we're seeing really innovative ideas coming out, for example, the National Trust for Historic Preservation in the United States, which is saying what if instead of assuming that we can demolish things. We assume that everything that we have in the environment has to be kept, and you have to, speaking to a developer or a homeowner, you have to justify demolition. What if we flip the coin and say, and say, say that heritage has a kind of an inherent value that we should keep? And so that, that, that's the kind of thought bubble. But in practice, in, in nations like Scotland, uh, infrastructure policy, climate change policy, housing policy is all beginning to assume that heritage is something that we should keep. Everything that exists is something we should keep, and you need to justify dem- demolition. And so it really, again, flips the rule, um, and I think that's where we're going to see the future of thinking about heritage, thinking about our whole environment in a more holistic way, being of heritage, and what of, of that heritage do we want to carry with us into the future through a range of, of, of values and a range of concerns. Yeah, and I'm sure it also has implications for decisions about new builds as well and, um, you know, the way that, uh, yeah, the, the idea of demolition and rebuilding in, instead of, um, you know, considering sustainability principles based on the built uh, built environment that we already have. So I appreciate you pointing to those examples and also for taking us through some of these concerns about heritage policy, where we're falling behind, how we might catch up, and um, what are some of the key concerns here around uh, the intersection of heritage policy and climate justice. So, James, thanks so much for making the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me.
All right, and that was Dr. James Lesh, urban historian and lecturer in cultural heritage and museum studies, who spoke with us today about heritage policy and climate change adaptation. James's research explores the theory and practice of heritage conservation in the 20th and 21st centuries. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we might go into a quick little rundown of what we've covered today. So um, do you want to kick us off? Absolutely. Firstly, we heard uh, from... Marissa from the Doing Time show who caught up with Narita Watt, who is the CEO of Aboriginal Legal Service, about a recent case challenging the age pension discrimination for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yep, and uh, afterwards we heard from Ronnie Karani, Canberra-based West Papuan activist, musician and youth worker and broadcaster on 3CR, who spoke with us about, uh, to provide a West Papuan analysis of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's meeting with Indonesian President Joko Widodo earlier this week. And then we heard from Mally Millett, who is CEO of Disability Advocacy Network Australia, and they joined us today to speak about advocacy, how to build strong networks and current projects. And finally, as you just heard, we spoke with Dr. James Lesh, an urban historian and lecturer in cultural heritage and museum studies on heritage policy and climate change adaptation. And um, Dr. Lesh has had appointments at the Universities of Melbourne, Sydney and King's College London. And his latest book, Values in Cities, Urban Heritage in the 20th Century Australia, offers an overview of the Australian heritage movement. So go check that out. Just a final reminder, next week is our 3CR Thursday Breakfast Radiothon show. Please donate to at givenow.org.au forward slash cr forward slash breakfast, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.